0: Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit. Bullshit is rampant. Total fucking bullshit. Bullshit. This makes no fucking sense. I mean, it's just bullshit. Fuck. Bullshit is
1: bullshit.
0: (laughs) I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell...
2: Ah, the right
1: theme, <laughs> hey. Oh, it felt good. Yeah. It felt well. good. Welcome back to the Bullshit Filter, episode 3.20. <clears throat> Papa Bear. Yeah, if
3: anybody needs a happy thought for the day, this is it Aretha and George are now in heaven singing together once again. I just wanted to put that out there because it made me happy. Not that they're dead. George. George.
1: Michael. George,
3: George, George Michael, Aretha Franklin. Come on, don't you diss on George Michael. Oh I will God. fucking lose it.
1: <laughs> anyway, so in our last episode, we talked about uh <laughs> Vietnam. Yeah. 20% of the US troops in Vietnam were addicted to heroin, 40% had tried heroin. They were all smoking weed. Um, So Bud Krogh calls Jerome Jaffe and says, What should we do? And he says, Get a big (laughs) urine analysis machine, stick it there, tell them that if there's any sign of drugs in their pee, they can't come home. That'll sort them out. Uh, Meanwhile, I talked about uh, the French connection and the Golden Triangle and the CIA's involvement in setting that up, etc.
3: Just wanted to add. Just Meanwhile, wanted to add that I was looking up someone's mm-hmm. dissertation, and they were talking about uh, that you could do heroin in Vietnam. The soldiers could for roughly six dollars a day. So they were there, they were bored, they were scared. And we didn't really go into this, but uh, as the Vietnam War goes on, there's more and more uh, people who are drafted as opposed to regular servicemen or volunteers. And so they're miserable. They don't want to be there. The drugs are available. They're relatively cheap. And so these guys do what any human would do to try to forget the misery for a couple hours. You know, they they, they take this drug and and it works for them. But now the government, the army and the Pentagon's got to do something about it.
1: You know, I just saw on Facebook Tony Kynaston's listening to the Renaissance episode 22 <laughs> the- when you said you were going to take a swing at him, and he said, swing away, Ray, swing away. Just remember, I'll see it coming. I have a 22-hour preamble. It will have yeah. a 22-hour preamble. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't push me, Tony.
3: <sighs> anyway.
1: Yeah. Well, six dollars a day in nineteen seventy money seems like a lot of money for. for what a else habit. are you going to spend it on? You're
3: in fucking Vietnam. Hmm. Well,
1: fair yeah. point. Um. So, in meanwhile, in the early seventies, uh, Dickie right. Nixon, Dick right. Nix, is what I always would have called Dick. him. Hey, it's Dick Nix. Press. Dick Nix put together something called the Schaefer Commission, formerly known as the uh, National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. Uh, Its chairman was the former Pennsylvania governor, Raymond P. Schaefer. Um, So it was uh, colloquially known as the Schaefer Commission. Put it together to figure out what the government should do about drugs, particularly Marijuana. But
3: the problem is, Schaefer is a hard ass, and a lot of the people on the commission are very conservative doctors. So, this is not exactly an open and honest assessment of what could be done.
1: Well, despite all of that, the commission came out with its findings, a report in 1972. Mm-hmm. They called for the complete decriminalisation of <laughs> marijuana possession in the United States. That was because
3: of its executive director, Michael Sonnenreich. I think that's how you say his name. I don't know.
1: Mm. It also said the criminalization of possession of marijuana for personal use is socially self-defeating. Mm-hmm. It said considering the range of social concerns in contemporary America, marijuana does not in our considered judgment, rank very high. We would de-emphasise <laughs> marijuana as a problem. The health effects are minimal. The gateway drug theory has no basis. Yeah. If anything, smoking marijuana inhibits <laughs> criminal behaviour.
3: <laughs> it does
1: mine. <laughs> so this is in 1972, Ray. Yeah. yeah. We And this isn't the first time we've seen this. Like... Uh, right professional opinions coming forwards and saying, marijuana is not a problem to the American government and the American government going, shut the fuck right.
3: up. I correct me if I'm wrong, but this report didn't get as much attention with the networks as it could have. I'm trying to remember.
1: Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll okay. cover the, that later, later on, but yes, it got no, no coverage <laughs> whatsoever. All <right>. Um, um, <clears throat> But this, you know, this is uh, fascinating to me. So, you know, I I think I I always tended to assume that governments believed marijuana was a problem because that was the thinking of the time.
3: they didn't know any better.
1: And it's only... Yeah, it's only been gradually over the last 10 or 20 years that they've started to figure out that Uh, actually um, it's not a bigger problem as we thought it was. But the thing that we've discovered mm -hmm. over and over and over again in this series is Uh. that going right back to the earliest days of the war on drugs, back in the 30s under Harry the gunslinger Anslinger, <clears throat> professional scientific and medical opinion over and over again told the people mm-hmm. in the US government and in the UK government before the that Remember- who were in charge
3: Remember the test in India? There yeah. A massive, massive test in India in 1860s. And they said, and the report pretty much said the same thing. It's not harmful. It won't lead to anything else. And it doesn't bother society in a larger sense. Say pretty much word for word. So they've known this stuff for, for quite some time.
1: For, for uh, over a century. Right. By the time of Nixon, <laughs> for over a century, this had been understood. Right. And they just ignore it. Yeah. So obviously... Yeah. The government's reasons for prosecuting a war on marijuana in particular is not based on science. Right. It's not based on reason. It's not based on logic. It's based on other factors that they don't talk about publicly. Publicly, they were saying it's bad for you, it's going to kill you, it's a gateway drug, uh, it leads to crime... Mm-hmm etc you but really they know that those things aren't true
3: yeah and they know specifically yet it, like you said those things aren't true they know specifically through their commissions that this is not a big deal in the sense that they think that they're telling everybody
1: yet again it's another example of how governments lie to us yeah and that to 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 assume governments are lying to us, it doesn't make you a crazy tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorist because we have evidence <laughs> that they've been lying their to evidence, us.
3: Their own evidence. I, I, <laughs> I just want to ask you a, a quick follow-up question. We know Harry Anslinger was lying. Uh, part of it was a moral conviction. Part of it was job security. We know that the agents in the fields and cops and stuff like that, they're going to be padding their records um, with small time Penny Annie stuff, again to to uh pad their records and get funding. I get all that. Going through this going through these books, I was really trying to get a sense as far as Nixon. Um, he came across as it was a moral crusade, but it didn't feel it didn't feel right, it didn't feel true. I still felt like it was a red flag operation with all the shit in Vietnam and and the other stuff that he's trying to deal with. And then of course the water great gate break in, I just really didn't feel that he was a true believer. Like some of these Christians, What what's your take on that?
1: No, I, I think Nixon um, campaigned on law and order mm-hmm. and um, he needed to be seen to be doing stuff about that. And, Drugs was one way of making it look like you do you're doing stuff, but as the Schaefer Commission itself stated, so it, it asked the question eventually, So if all of these um, popular ideas about marijuana are incorrect, mm-hmm. doesn't lead to criminal behavior. in fact, it inhibits it. It's not a gateway drug, um, it's not bad for you, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Why are people so worried about kids smoking weed? And the Schaefer Commission concluded the reason was that because it was associated with kids dropping out of university and of society, um, uh, of growing their hair long, free love, rock and roll, questioning authority, Um, they wrote... Marijuana becomes more than a drug. It becomes a symbol of the rejection of cherished values. But
3: cherished by the previous generation.
1: Right. So that is, I think, what's going on with Nixon as well. We know that uh, Nixon wasn't very popular um, with the, the youth. Mm-hmm. With the Democrats, so most of the youth probably would have been voting Democrat, um, and uh, the and the uh, the the black population, um, the Mexicans. Right. So if you if 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 the youth and the blacks and the Mexicans are using marijuana and they don't like you by prosecuting a war on marijuana, you're prosecuting a war on those people, but wrapped up in different. Um, uh, 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 ribbons, so does you can't say I don't like the youth and the hippies <laughs> and the darkies and the spics, So I'm going to go and attack them. I'm going to just throw them all in jar. You can't do that. You have to, you have to mask it with something that sounds logical and reasonable, but in fact, isn't.
3: Well, I I, I never really sat down and listened to the Nixon tapes, but just a couple of quotes in some of these books, I mean, he did in private, he did use some very harsh language when he was talking about putting out statements and wanting to go after people. So you get the sense he was a hard ass. But you're right, he couldn't just come out and say it, he would have been even more unpopular. But I'm just I'm just um, convinced that he wasn't he, he, I don't know. I don't know if he had the Christian conviction, but I think you're absolutely right in that he, to him, crime and drugs were so intertwined. To take care of one was to cure the other.
1: Now, of course, this whole report, commissioned by the Nixon administration, mm-hmm. was ignored by the Nixon administration <sighs> and by the media, as you pointed out before. Now, I went. Searching for coverage of it um, on newspapers.com, it's practically non-existent. I searched for Schaefer Commission. I searched for its proper name, the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse. From the period in 1972 when it came out, there is next to nothing. Mm -hmm. The only coverage I could see in the media, the mainstream media, was a year later when another report came out basically debunking the original report but not based on any science, just going, nah, it's a crock of bullshit, some other guy. So this is the only mention the media had was when another Nixon guy came out and basically said, "No, nah, that, that Schaefer Commission report was a bunch of nonsense. Um, the only other report I found out was from 1976, the only other coverage, I mean, from Robert Hagayers, the guy who played Epstein on Welcome Back, Cotter. He was interviewed, and he gave the report a shout-out. He had read it, (laughs) and he was talking about the politics of it. And uh, here's a clip of Epstein, not talking about it, just from Welcome (laughs) Back, Cotter, just because I love that show. This is his first appearance on Welcome Back, (laughs) Cotter. Epstein, huh?
2: Juan Luis
3: Pedro Filippo de Juevos, Epstein. From San Juan. Your mother's Puerto Rican? No, my father. My mother's name is Bibberman.
0: I didn't know, you know, that there were Epsteins in Puerto Rico.
3: Oh, there weren't. Until the winter of 38, when a boat carrying a shivering Lou Epstein from Odessa to the Bronx stopped in San Juan. Oi, my grandfather Look at the palm trees. Feel this heat. Look at this tan. Hey, who needs Miami?
2: <laughs>
3: From that day on, there were Epstein's and San Juan.
2: That's very interesting, uh, Epstein. What's your favorite subject? Assault.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah, if I remember, wow. he, he always handled things through violence.
1: And why not? (laughs) Um, you got it, do it. Died a few years ago, too. Um, Yeah. Now, the um, director of the National Institute of Mental Health, Bertram Brown, uh, at this time, said in a speech that he thought marijuana offences should be treated like a parking ticket. (laughs) So Nixon fired. Oh. Yeah, not not exactly the best move
3: for job security. I, I did run across when a reporter asked him about uh, the commission. He said, and, and Nixon kept it real, and you got to respect him for that. He goes, I am against legalizing marijuana. Even if the commission does recommend that it be legalized, I will not follow that recommendation. So these guys are wasting their time, but it was a scientific research, and they did come up with what we consider to be the truth based on other commissions and reports.
1: Yeah, you know— Nixon commissioned this commission, and then went, it. but I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to listen to it. I mean, if it doesn't say what I wanted to say, well, fuck it. Then yeah, fuck yeah. it. Yeah. <clears throat> Meanwhile, back in Vietnam, the army started cracking down hard on heroin use. They they diverted whole battalions of troops out of combat mm. to try and catch suppliers, destroy the supply lines seizing sampans full of smack. Oh, God. The vials of heroin that Bud Krogh had seen in bunkers went from $3 to $12 apiece, and their purity dropped, which, of course, was a catastrophe. Yeah. So when Bud Krogh had been there, the heroin that the men were drinking with alcohol mm. or snorting or smoking was very very pure and very low price right See, no one likes sticking a needle in their own arm no um, it's it's not fun. no one opts for that. So it's particularly heroin users in the early stages it's it's far easier for them if they can snort it or smoke it or drink it. and apparently, Consuming heroin that way, you're far less likely to get addicted. Ah, uh. um, But snorting it, smoking it, or drinking it, you have to use a fair amount of the powder, which is a luxury you can't afford if the price quadruples and the purity drops. So you have to find a way to get more bang for your buck, and the most direct way to get heroin into the brain is to inject it. So by... Cracking down on the supply lines, what the Pentagon actually did was force the heroin users to start injecting it, uh, which was not good for them. So initially by cracking down on marijuana, the army pushed the troops to snort heroin. (laughs) When they cracked down on snorting heroin, they pushed the troops into mainlining heroin. So good work, Pentagon. Good thinking, they didn't think, think, think about what you trying to do to the heroin guys. Oh, my God. Heroin troops, heroin something, D- addicts.
3: Just Again, just making one huge mistake after another, I just, yeah. At what point does they go, you know what? I admit defeat. We need to try something completely different. But they just keep doing balls to the wall because they're military. That's, that's how they handle problems.
1: And then in the middle of 1972, uh, Jaffe was again summoned to washington this time to present his plan for dealing with drugs to president nixon himself god
3: okay so i think as we said earlier so uh bud grog um contacts jaff and he says look write me up something because i've just been to vietnam and this is absolutely horrible we have to come up with something you've already mentioned the technology for testing in the urine get the machine that kind of stuff and eventually um Krogh asked Jaffe to come and see him. And I don't think Jaffe was told exactly what they were going to do that day, but uh, Krogh takes him to the Pentagon to meet all the top brass. Uh, And he calls Jaffe the consultant to the president. So these generals and these admirals are taking this shit very seriously. They're listening to this relatively young man. And Jaffe goes over the plan, the report that he had written up. He said, you get this machine, you test everybody, you use methadone. Um, That's what I recommend. And the generals try to fight back because this is their territory. They're like, look, we've already got the Defense Department working on this. We're going to come up with our own plan. We'll probably have it ready in about four or five months. And it's kind of similar to yours. And Jaffe goes, well, I think the president wants something sooner than four or five months. So the generals leave the room, they come back in about 10 minutes later, and they say, okay, we're going to go along with your plan. So you get the machine, you get it to California, and we'll get the sucker up and running in about two weeks, two to three weeks, which Jaffe's impressed. But then he realizes they probably assumed he was speaking for the president because of what Grog said. So again, so this is going to be set up and... Um, and they are going to implement it, like you said earlier. But now it's time for this to keep moving forward. So Groh is going to bring Jaffrey back, Jaffey back to this uh, to Washington, but this time to talk to ne- Nixon
1: himself. So, at the meeting, Nixon declares that he's going to create a new federal agency, the Special Action Office for Drug Abuse Prevention, or Up! <laughs> Uh, which is the worst acronym ever? I started calling it soda
3: pop in my head. Just, just throw. Them oh, down. soda pop.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> <clears throat> let's throat> let's go with that. No. That sounds more like no. that's that's more and yeah, fun to say. Soda pop. <laughs> so it's going to operate out of the executive office of the president. Um, have the highest authority in the land. Enough authority to knock heads. Nixon was fond of saying in these days that public enemy number one. Oh. Were, in, in America was drugs. Public enemy number one. <laughs> <clears throat> Which means we've got to play this. Yo, Chuck, what's
2: the move, man? I on my way up here to the studio, you know what I'm saying? And his brother stopped me and asked me, yo, what's up with that brother Chucky did He swayed like, I said, yo, bro, I don't he nice,
3: he knows he's nice, you know what I'm saying? So Chuck and feeling he's turning into a public enemy, man. Now remember that line, you was kicking at me on the way out to L.A. Lyrton, Queens, while we was in the car on the way to the shop.
0: Well, yo, yeah, right now, keep the bass for them brothers and let them know what goes on. Right. What goes on? on? Well, well, I can't put it up on the floor, another rapper shot down.
1: So, yeah, drugs, a public enemy number one for Nixon. And anyway, so he says he's going to set up this new uh, soda pop agency, highest authority in the land. He was going to ask Congress the next day to appropriate $371 million for soda pop. (laughs) Um, It was partly going to be involved in testing and treating the soldiers of Vietnam, but also to set up a whole bunch of state run methadone clinics. Yeah. In the United States. Good for him. And then Nixon said, I want to introduce the new director of Soda Pop, <laughs> the man who's going to be running the whole thing, Is that the legend, Jerome Jaffe.
3: <laughs> he said, what?
1: Yeah, Nixon apparently hadn't mentioned to Jaffe that he was appointing him to be the country's <laughs> oh, first God. drug czar, yeah. but uh, he did. And then the next day he went to Congress, and I have... Nixon's press conference here uh, after he went to the conference, I'm going to play this for you all.:
0: you want to join me here? Won't you be seated, please, ladies and gentlemen? Come on, Dr. Jaffe and Mr. Krog, Mr.. All right. Sure, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to summarize for you the meeting that I have just had with the bipartisan leaders, which began at eight o'clock and was completed two hours later. I began the meeting by making this statement, which I think needs to be made to the nation. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. This will be a worldwide offensive dealing with the problems of sources of supply as well as Americans who may be stationed abroad wherever they are in the world. It will be government-wide pulling together the nine different fragmented areas within the government in which this problem is now being handled. And it will be nationwide in terms of a new educational program uh, that we trust will result uh, from the discussions that we have had. With regard to this offensive, Uh, it is necessary first to have a new organization. And the new organization will be within the White House. Uh, Dr. Jaffe, who will be one of the briefers here today, will be the man directly responsible. He will report directly to me. And he will have the responsibility to take all of the government agencies, nine that deal with the problems of rehabilitation, uh, in which his primary responsibilities will be, research and education, and see that they work not across purposes, but work together in dealing with the problem. If we're going to have a successful offensive, we need more money. Consequently, I'm asking the Congress for $155 million in new funds, which will bring the total amount this year in the budget for drug abuse, both in enforcement and treatment, to over $350 million. As far as the new money is concerned, incidentally, I have made it clear to the leaders that if this is not enough, if more can be used, if Dr. Jaffe, Jaffe, after studying this problem, finds that we can use more, more will be provided. In order to defeat this enemy, which is causing such great concern, and correctly so to so many American families, money will be provided to the extent that it is necessary and to the extent that it will be useful. And finally, in order for this program to be effective, it is necessary uh, that it be conducted on a basis in which the American people all join in it. That's why the meeting was bipartisan, bipartisan because we needed the support of the Congress, but bipartisan because we needed the leadership of members of the Congress in this field. Fundamentally, it is essential for the American people to be alerted to this danger, to recognize that it is a danger that will not pass with the passing of the war in Vietnam, which has brought to our attention the fact that a number of young Americans have become addicts as they serve abroad, whether in Vietnam or Europe or other places. Because the problem existed before we became involved in Vietnam, it will continue to exist afterwards, and that is why this offensive deals with the problem there in Europe, but will then go on to deal with the problem throughout America uh... one final word with regard to presidential responsibility in this respect i very much hesitate always to bring some new responsibility into the white house because there are so many here and i believe in delegating those responsibilities to the departments but i consider this problem so urgent i also found that it was scattered so much throughout the government with so much conflict without coordination that it had to be brought into the white house And consequently, I have brought Dr. Jaffe into the White House directly reporting to me so that we have not only the responsibility but the authority to see that we wage this offensive effectively and in a coordinated way. Uh, The briefing team will now be ready to answer any questions on the technical details of the program.
1: So I I find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. But a, because Nixon, one of the greatest douchebags you ever had as president, and <laughs> right. yet compared to Trump... He could talk. I watch it going... He could fucking talk. Yeah, he he seems like a reasonable guy. Yeah. Um, secondly, as you can hear, he talks about drugs like it's the hordes of hell yes. beating on the door of America. It's outrageous how he builds it up. And, you know, this is big part of... <laughs> the American political landscape <coughs> since World War II. Mm-hmm. You always need to have a big, scary boogeyman right. Life who's going to come and get you in the yes. middle of the night mm-hmm. and uh, just you need to trust us that we're uh, going to keep you safe but you're going to have to give us lots of money and <laughs> lots of authority. Don't think, just fear. Um, yeah. yeah. And the drug problem also is now firmly established as a problem... Of individuals uh, and and the solution is to get the individuals to stop using drugs and to stop the drug 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 traffickers selling them the drugs. root causes is well and truly dead. nothing <laughs> in Nixon's speech there is he talking about <laughs> well the underlying social causes right. we're going to tackle racism and poverty and lack of opportunity and alienation and Education doesn't tackle any of that. (laughs) Not 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 a single mention of root causes. As you know, no 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 mention at all of well, why do people use the drugs in the first place, Mister President? Why do people feel like they need to get fucked up? In there, when you're in there in Vietnam, it's pretty obvious. (laughs) But the people back home, nothing, nothing at all about that's the mission of soda pop or anything. Um, complete fucking big blank yeah. when it comes to root causes.
3: And, and not only that, but after that conference, um, J- uh, Jaffe's uh, colleagues, his professional colleagues, other psychiatrists, they're not very happy with this because they're like, again, like you were saying, you're only dealing with the symptoms of society. You're not dealing with the people. You're not dealing with what causes this kind of stuff. And uh, d- just to give you a comparison, Nixon calls drug abuse the number one problem Uh, In May of that year, there was an opinion survey uh, throughout the country, and uh, 23% of those who who responded um, said that drugs were the number one problem, but that only made it the fourth domestic issue. As far as the people who took this survey are concerned, uh, the number one problem was uh, inflation, pollution, and pollution had to be pretty fucking bad to be number two, unemployment, and then drug abuse, but... Uh, Nixon, I almost said Trump, Nixon, like Trump, is going to repeat himself over and over and over again and keep harping on this, that it does move up in the polls, just like every time Trump, Trump says witch hunt, witch hunt, witch hunt, whatever. So the point is, Nixon, through his bully pulpit, is going to move this up to the forefront of the people's consciousness and hopefully get some support out of that. But he's going balls to the wall on dealing with this so-called number one problem.
1: Even though his own commission had just said it wasn 't a problem at all
3: <laughs> I, I have to give one more one more quote, according to uh, the chief of Staff diary. Nixon asks why all the Jews seem to be the ones that are liberating for re- liberating the regulations on marijuana, which to me is entering Hitler, Hitler territory. but the point is behind the scenes, this guy is just speaking the way he thinks and the way he feels, and he, you, you just get the sense that he's a little bit paranoid about things. But he has made this announcement. Jaffrey has gotten over his Jeffrey has gotten over his shock, <laughs> and now he is in he's in some ways the nation's first drug czar. It's his job now. Nixon
1: paranoid? No, <laughs> no I don't know not. what you what you got that idea from. No, but
3: he's just the quotes that you get in people's diaries. This guy was out there.
1: Now, Jaffe, uh, by all accounts, seems to have been a good guy. Um, He he didn't believe any of this connection (laughs) between drugs and crime. He didn't believe that (laughs) drugs were a moral failing. He saw it as a health issue. But he wants to do something about it. He wants to do it on a national scale. He's just fallen into this. Apparently when he told his wife (laughs) that he had this job and they were moving to Washington... She was like, what? And he was like, hey, <clears throat> when the president calls you up, you, you can't say no. You've got to go yeah. and do it, right? Um, even though I think privately thought Nixon was batshit insane, yeah, um, he had a job to do. Um, the, jour- the next day there was another prefer- uh, press conference with Jaffe where they are talking about soda pop. Uh, the journalists asked Jaffe Mm-mm. for his opinion on whether or not marijuana should be legalised. Yeah. He basically tried to avoid the question. Um, Eventually, when they kept trying to nail him on it, you know, he can't be seen to be disagreeing with the president on his first day (laughs) on the job. So he rambled on, managed to say that while marijuana itself wasn't a problem, using a drug which was illegal Mm -hmm. might make people more willing to use other drugs that were illegal Mm and do other illegal stuff, and he was so rambly that the reporters fell asleep and just dropped the subject, <laughs> basically. Away
3: from someone else, yeah. Now, um, Which is yeah.
1: actually a deliberate strategy that I think a lot of politicians use. Oh, yeah. I know Trump uses that a lot. Just keep rambling long enough that people forget what the original question was and you get away with yeah. it.
3: And, and Bud Groh was there, and he did toe the line. He said, look, marijuana is dangerous. And that's part of this, because Nixon's going to go on and bash the American people over the head with his messages, and then pretty soon the lines are blurred. Well, is one drug more dangerous than another? And it starts to you know they start to think along Nixon's lines that all drugs are bad, all drugs are dangerous, and they all need to be eradicated.
1: Now, when Nixon got up in front of Congress and asked them to finance the soda pop agency, mm-hmm. um, he said that heroin addicts stole, right. Over two billion dollars worth of property a year Damn. to support their habits. That's a lot. It is a lot, uh, <laughs> particularly when you take into account that in 1971 the total value of all property stolen in the United States uh-huh. burglaries, robberies, thefts, etc. was only 1.3 billion dollars.
3: Ah, he was slight accounting error, but you're forgetting. When the president says it, it must be true.
1: (laughs) I was going to play that clip later. Now you've ruined it for me.
3: I'm sorry, dude. Uh,
1: So Nixon is blaming heroin addicts for 153% of the property crime (laughs) in the United States. (laughs) They're
3: busy. See, if they were on pot, they wouldn't be nearly as busy. That's all I'm saying.
1: But here's the second part of that nobody questioned him on that figure. Yeah. Not other congressmen, not uh, the media. Everyone just went, okay, okay. if All the right. president says it, then two, it must be true. Two
3: billion it is, uh, so thank you.
1: <clears throat> yeah. yeah. No one bothered to go, uh, <coughs> bullshit, Mr. <laughs> president. Uh, but,
3: but but even worse, in some ways Nixon started a bidding war because others are going to make equally Outrageous claims.
1: Now, one idea that Nixon had at the time, uh, which I find fascinating, right. was to buy up the world's supply <laughs> of opium. Right. Makes sense. Well, can't we just buy it all? Then they can't sell it. If we own it, we, we, we buy it, and then they can't sell it. Now, <laughs> That's true. Nixon thought it was a good idea. Henry Kissinger, who was his national security advisor at the time, thought it was a good idea. John Mitchell, his attorney general at the time. Yeah, it wasn't Ehrlichman. It was Mitchell who was the attorney general. Right. Um, I think I said in the last episode it was Ehrlichman. I can't remember what his job was. I think it was
3: counsel um, to the special counsel. counsel to the White House.
1: Yes, you're right. Um but Mitchell, along with Ehrlichman, also served time for uh, Watergate. <laughs> he served, the Attorney General, that's- John Mitchell, served 19 months for Watergate. Oh,
3: that's all that matters.
1: Um, Pat Moynihan, advisor to the president, thought it was a good idea. But um, a guy called Miles Ambrose was in the room. Mm-hmm. Miles at the time was the Commissioner of Customs. And so anyway, he doesn't think it's a good idea. Um, Nixon's saying, how much would it cost? $50 a million, $100 million? Snap it up. Everyone thought, yeah, that's a great idea. They turned to Ambrose and asked what he think. He said he felt like he was in Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> he said if they went ahead with the plan, he was seriously thinking of quitting his job and going into the opium business himself. <laughs> you dumb not Oh, you box. got a ready-made market? The American government's going to buy everything you can produce? Yeah. Fantastic. Sign me up. Yeah, Yeah. So that shut down that idea. But then Nixon had another idea. Mm. He quietly instructed Bud Krogh to contact the Turkish government and tell them that the USA would pay them $35 million in quote-unquote aid if they shut down their opium farms. Now, as we mentioned earlier, they had already started that process, Nixon said, hurry it up, shut them all down, we'll pay you $35 million. That sounds fair. Do you trust them? To actually
3: shut it down, though, that's the question.
1: Well, uh, maybe. Um, So Nixon held a press conference with the Turkish ambassador and praised uh, the Turkish government for their, quote-unquote, decision to end all further, uh, further opium production.
3: Did they mention the
1: money? Um, no, they didn't mention the money. Uh, and I actually did look up these uh, the, the press coverage of this, um, and he said, as a result of negotiations, the Turkish government has made a decision. Oh. Not we've said we're going to give them $35 million <laughs> in aid, uh, just as a result of negotiations. So... Whenever you see the term negotiations right. uh, in the media Armed between Christine, governments, yeah. normally can translate that as is, is we said we'd pay them a lot of money if right. they would do what we want them to do.
3: And or we broke two fingers um, and we promised to break more fingers if they didn't go along with us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we, we showed them our guns <laughs> and said, mm, how do you feel about it now? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But I imagine- By the way, yeah. you know you know this general who doesn't like you. Well, <laughs> here's an email from him saying, "Sure, he'd love a hundred million dollars in a Swiss bank account, and for us to uh, supply him with lots of weapons and coverage uh, to th- overthrow your government." So now, how are you feeling about it? <laughs> how you like um, me now? <clears throat> but um, the PR value of this press conference with the Turkish government was also nil. A bit like the Schaefer Commission when it came out. Because on the same day it happened, uh, and I'm sure the timing of this is purely (laughs) coincidental, uh, (laughs) the U.S. Supreme Court gave the New York Times permission to publish the Pentagon Papers.
3: Did Nixon really think bringing up the Turkish ambassador would compete with that?
1: Mm. Yeah. 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 Now, on that, um, I looked up uh, some of the press surrounding that as well, and um, I found this interesting in the coverage. This was on the front page of the New York Daily News on the 1st of July 1971 after the Supreme Court gave the New York Times permission. Mm Mm-hmm. Justice Hugo Black from the Supreme Court said in his, um, whatever they call it, statement, what do they call it, his um, verdict, or his, his oh,
3: God. whatever, yeah.
1: supporting statement for their decision. Sure. Um, his decision, I think that's what they call it. The guarding of military and diplomatic secrets at the expense of informed representative government provides no real security for our republic. Hmm. Justice Potter Stewart said without an informed and free press, there cannot be an enlightened people. And I was thinking about that in terms of the Obama government's crackdown on whistleblowers, right. um, the U.S. going after Julian Assange and WikiLeaks um, for revealing state secrets, Um there you go. So in the early 70s, the Supreme Court would have been uh, very supportive, I think, right. of what uh, Assange has been doing. Not who Anywho, um, so yeah, the Pentagon Papers, and, I mean, we've gone into detail, I think, about those and the Cold War show, no need to do that here. Suffice to say that Nixon was obsessed with finding out who had leaked the documents and stopping further leaks, and the guy he gave the job to was Bud Krogh.
3: Yeah. And B- Bud Krogh was going to put his own man on it. He was going to hire the one, the only, G. Gordon Liddy to be his, I guess, his advance man, his his, uh, his his chief operative of finding out who, who these leak- leakers were so they could bust him.
1: Yeah, Liddy, uh, people may recall, we talked about uh, in an earlier episode of this show... Uh, Operation Intercept, where they tried to shut the border with Mexico, right. so they could inspect all of the cars for drugs coming through.
3: Does that work? Uh,
1: Liddy was the guy. Yeah, <laughs> Liddy was the guy who sort of came up with that idea. G. Gordon Liddy, George Gordon Battle Liddy, <clears throat> uh, former FBI agent. Uh, these still going these days. He's eighty-seven now. Damn. Mad as a cut. Mad as a cut snake, George (laughs) Liddy. I think he became a talk show host. I think he's been on Fox and all that kind of stuff. Um, Yeah, but uh, crazy motherfucker. And I'm not sure, did I ever play the clip uh, of him explaining to John Dean about how he built up a pain tolerance? No,
3: that does not sound familiar.
1: So I read Liddy's autobiography, which is called Will. I read it 25 years ago. Uh, Fascinating book. This guy is one crazy motherfucker. But there was a film made about Watergate um, many years ago, Martin Sheen playing John Dean and William Daniels playing G. Gordon Liddy, where Liddy tells the story to Dean that he tells in the book and I'm going to play this for you so you just know the kind of guy we're dealing with here
2: Gordon, good to see you Sit down Sorry to bust in on you, John Not at all The fact is, I need some help Well, I hope you've come to the right place Jeb Stewart Magruder, my nominal superior is an idiot He's going around introducing me as his man in charge of dirty tricks You're kidding Control him, John that innocent amateur is going to blow my cover. Amateur, yes, innocent, no. I'll talk to him, Buddy. Anything else? Well, I've been analyzing the intelligence requirements for the campaign. Mm-hmm. Big operation. Oh, I know. What kind of budget do you think I should present to Mr. Mitchell? I don't know, Gordon. Caulfield was talking about a half a million for sandwich. I guess you could go that high, maybe higher if you could justify it. I appreciate your candor, John. What happened to your hand? Oh, nothing really. I look serious. Well, some might feel that way, I don't. It was necessary, you see, that I prove my strength to the men that I'm recruiting to assist me at the convention. What do you mean, prove your strength? Well, in my business, it's important that the men I work with understand that I'm a man of strength. What my Cubans call macho. So to prove myself to them, I held my hand over a flame till the flesh burned. I did that without wincing. I wanted them to know that I can stand any amount of physical pain. So long, John. So long, Bert. And thank you. Not at all. Jane? Jane, are you there? Oh, uh, Yes, John. Yeah. would you give me Jeff McGurter, please? Stay
1: away from Gordon Liddy. Because <laughs> 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 he's crazy as a motherfucker. So, Cam, um, are, yeah, you yeah. are you macho? Are you macho? Not that macho, Ray, no. <laughs> I
3: thought I was. It, it turns no. out, no,
1: not so much. It reminds me of that great scene, which I won't play, but from uh, Lawrence of Arabia, mm-hmm. where uh, Lawrence is putting out the match with his fingers and one of his colleagues goes, Blimey, doesn't it hurt? He says, "Of course it hurts." The <laughs> trick. What's the trick then? The trick is in not minding that it hurts. <laughs> um, yeah, Liddy's Liddy's batch it crazy. But anyway, so he's brought in because Krog's team is going to work in the basement, and their job is to plug leaks. They were known as the White House plumbers. Oh God! It sounds like
3: something a macho guy would come up with
1: yeah um, now Krogh's work with the plumbers meant that he was never to return to drug policy. Jeez. But when the administration decided to pursue the Pentagon paper papers' leaker, mm-hmm. it was Krogue, the same guy who came up with uh, you know all of this drug policy, who approved the burglary of the office of Lewis Fielding, the psychiatrist. Ah, God who was uh, seeing Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, It was Liddy and E. Howard Hunt who would commit the actual break-in. I think Hunt was ex-CIA. Now, um, John Ehrlichman, who was counsel and assistant to the President for Domestic Affairs, who's Krogh's boss, and personally brought him into the White House, as I mentioned in the last episode. He later said uh, in his memoirs that this... Krogh's approval to um, burgle the office of the psychiatrist was an example of such doubtful personal judgment that it has to be said Krogh materially contributed to the demise of the Nixon administration. Damn. Um, John Ehrlichman, by the way, also went to prison for uh, Watergate. On November 30th, 1973, Bud Krogh pleaded guilty to federal charges uh, regarding the break-in of the psychiatrist's office. He was sentenced to two to six years in prison but served only four and a half months. So, again, the great thing about Nixon is he was elected on law and order (laughs) and then changed the laws and his team just broke the laws... (laughs) (laughs) Um, wherever they saw fit, and Nixon obviously didn't go to jail. Some of his guys did, but didn't serve a great deal of time. Um, After serving time in uh, prison for Watergate, John Ehrlichman granted an interview to the author Dan Baum, Mm. uh, who wrote a book called Smoke and Mirrors, which covers, in large part, Nixon's uh, war on drugs. Um. And he reported that when he asked Ehrlichman to explain the origin of the war on drugs, this is what Ehrlichman said. The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalising both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Oh, God. Jeez. So there you have it, from a guy who was the architect of the war on drugs uh, from the Nixon administration. We knew we were lying about it. We did it to disrupt the anti-war left and black people.
3: And, and again, just going over the, these series uh, that we've done in the Bullshit Filter, for everybody who who might be younger listening to the show, don't be surprised when you hear that somebody in government or somebody in a position of authority or power does something counter to what they're supposed to be doing just because, just so it serves them best. Men and women throughout history have always sought to take care of their own own selves before, of take caring of uh, other people or or whatever entity they're supposed to be in charge of. Probably the only semi-exception to that is Augustus. Uh, that's the only one I've run across so far. But just don't be surprised when you, you're going to hear this for the rest of your life. But if you're 14 and you're listening to the show, first of all, shame on your parents. But second of all, that is the way the world works.
1: Augustus and Napoleon.
3: Napoleon. Okay, I'll, t- I'll give you that one. What about um, and Caesar? Caesar, I was going to say Caesar.
1: Uh, no, Caesar lied a lot a when he was part of the triumvirate. What about yeah.
3: Alexander? No, he was too... He
1: didn't. He didn't have to lie. No? He didn't have to lie.
3: He just put it out there.
1: He was a god. Who did oh, he have to lie to? Yeah, yeah. I swear, who's who's going to argue with him? I He's a god.
3: Swear by me, this is yeah. true. <laughs>
1: yeah. May I strike myself down if I tell a lie? <coughs> oh, I'm
3: dead.
1: Now, um, just so yeah, like that is a big lesson here. And again, we've we've tackled this on other shows, but your government lies to you on a regular basis, people, and the war on drugs at least during the Nixon administration era, it was mostly about attacking the left and attacking the blacks because they were a political threat. And so they had to take them out. They couldn't take them out legitimately, so they took them out illegitimately. Um, Mm. That's basically the facts as we understand them today. So think about that and context of today. Uh, when you see your government waging war on a particular sector of the community, ask yourself why. Mm-hmm. There will be the official reasons, the publicly stated reasons, but we always have to think about, well, what are the real reasons? What's really going on here? Who stands to benefit from this? Right. Qui bono, as our old mate uh, Cicero said, follow the money. Who benefits, actually, qui bono? It- Who benefits?
3: And it's not really – because I used to – I think I used to do this when we first first started doing these shows. I, I would try to interject morals or say something was good or bad or it was a sin or whatever. But if you can just put that aside for a second, Nixon was doing what he had to do because, like you said, he ran as a law and order president. This is what a law and order president supposed to do. Yes, he didn't like blacks very much, and the, the people under him were able to use these laws – to go after and coerce them and punish them and make their lives miserable. But, I mean, forget good and evil for a second. This is just what you do when you're in power. You use and abuse that power. You take care of your friends and your allies. You punish your enemies. And you hope the day never comes that either, one, you get caught, or two, you're not in power. That's just the way it's been for
1: thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Indeed. Well, meanwhile, back in Vietnam, the army had invested in not one, oh. but two piss machines Hell yeah. for the <laughs> troops to piss in <laughs> when they're scheduled to rotate out. Right. Now, as Jaffe had predicted, once word got out that men who failed the piss test would be kept in Vietnam longer, the numbers dropped dramatically. Uh. Now, the urine testing facilities had a number of really <laughs> clever names um, <clears throat> that the troops called it. Oh. One was the Pea House of the August Moon, <clears throat> uh, which was a reference to a 1956 film, The Tea House of the August Moon, <laughs> in which Marlon Brando played a Japanese guy. What? Um, I posted some uh, a photo and the trailer and stuff on Facebook about that the other day. If you've never seen this, and I'd never oh heard of this God. before, I'm a huge Marlon Brando fan. How do you thought I'd pretty much seen everything he'd done? Never heard of this. He plays a Japanese guy, but he, I got to say, he does it very well. How he's in he's what, what would you call it? Not blackface, I guess it's jap face. Yeah. Um, no. He. He apparently went and lived in Okinawa for months to prepare for this role. Oh. Um the voice, the mannerisms, uh he's very believable. Wow. I mean, I don't I mean I'm I'm not Okinawan. I don't know if I know any Okinawan people. I know some Japanese people I'm never sure asked very if they're likely. Okinawan, but yeah, I'm sure they are. But he uh he does a very good job. But um yes, it's quite strange wow. to think about did he get an Oscar? I mean, if I go full Jap,
3: no offense, I want <laughs> an Oscar.
1: I don't believe he did, no, but go check it out. Ugh. Look it up The Tea House of the August Moon. Okay. Uh, other unofficial names for the testing facility were Operation Golden Flow <laughs> and uh, Lemonade Party, the <laughs> Lemonade Party. Yeah, okay, I get that. Operation Golden Flow, <laughs> I, I like that. <laughs> There's got now, a Trump unf-
3: joke in there anyway. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was thinking of that yeah. at, at the time. Unfortunately, Congress had only authorised a single week of detox oh. and th- with three weeks of stateside follow-up um, for people, for the troops that have been found to be on heroin, which is a ridiculously short period of treatment to get an addict off heroin. But even more surprisingly, mm-hmm. most of the 20-odd thousand heroin addicts in Vietnam stopped using when they got home just on their off their own bat
3: wow, do you think there is was could you find out about any reason why was it just they weren't in that hell hole and they didn't need it
1: anymore yeah, well apparently, and this may be shocking to you, but when you're not trapped in a <laughs> hot humid jungle with people trying to kill you. Your need to shoot smack right? every day dramatically declines.
3: So so let me just go out on a limb here. So if we don't unnecessarily send young men across the planet to fight in wars they shouldn't be fighting in, I don't know, maybe we won't have this issue.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so okay. here's the great thing about this is here's a classic example of the root cause versus bad people uh, dichotomy. Right. These, these 20,000 uh, troops in, in uh, no, 50,000, 50,000 50, um, that were using heroin, uh, was it uh, because they were bad people, weak people, um, or was it because of their situation seems that as soon as we took them out of the situation, their drug use stopped. So you would have thought that somebody half smart would have gone, (laughs) well, fuck if we take the other 250,000 heroin addicts Mm -hmm. that we have in the United States out of their situation, they may no longer want to use heroin either, but no, that didn't happen. We still just treated them as bad people, weak, bad people. Right
3: who we drafted and gave a gun to and sent them to war.
1: No, I'm talking about the ones that are still back in the U.S. They're Oh, are oh using.
3: gotcha, gotcha. Okay, yeah, yeah.
1: A few days before Christmas 1971, Nixon made Miles Ambrose the special consultant to the President for Drug Abuse Law Enforcement. Um... Because Ambrose, who was the Commissioner for Customs, who said uh, if you start buying up the world supply of opium, I'll go into the opium business, he had cooked up right. a new way to track, tackle drugs. His idea was for a new federal agency mm-hmm. that would report to the White House that would be down on the street ah. making street-level drug arrests. Yeah. Not soda pop. Soda pop was for treatment. Right. This was for busts. And this was now going to be set up. He was going to be put in charge of it. It was known as O'Daly, the Office of Drug Abuse Law Enforcement. O'Dale or O'Daly. And there's some interesting background about this. I mean, uh, some people have said that this was really, there was nothing to this. It got no real money. It only had about 300 agents. It was designed to make the White House's involvement in the war on drugs more visible, because oh. up to the, at the up to this point, drug arrests were done at, at a local level, yeah, by by cops. Um, so now the White House was saying we have a federal agency that can go and do drug arrests, which means the people on the TV at the six o'clock news. Mm-hmm. Uh, with their table, with all the drugs and the guns uh, on it, a federal a White House of right. The White House is doing it. The White House takes credit for it. Jeez. But one White House deputy said, he put it this way, the feds uh, need to bust street dealers is the same reason Mafia Dons need to knock off a rival in public, just to show that we can do it. <laughs> <clears throat> but Nicholas Pileggi, right? The guy who wrote the article that turned into the book that turned into the film Goodfellas, mm-hmm. he was the guy that interviewed Henry Hill and and that whole thing. I read an article by him. He said he believes that O'Daly was uh, really set up by Nixon as his own private Gestapo. Nixon administration. Yeah. There was a, there was a lawyer working for Nixon called Don Santarelli. Uh, Between Santorelli and Ehrlichman and Bud Krog, they cooked up a bunch of new laws that they pushed through, like things like no-knock warrants and preventative detention. No-knock warrants where you could get a judge to order and no-knock warrant meant you didn't need to knock and ask permission to come into a house Mm -hmm. or say, hey, we have a warrant, we're coming in. You could just smack down a door in the middle of the night and barge in. Which is still happening in the US and there's been a bunch of stories over the last couple of years of people dying. I remember a baby somewhere, a bunch of DEA cops, I think, smashed open a door, family home in the middle of the night, threw a flashbang in, which landed in a baby's uh, cot that the baby was in, jeez. The baby ended up with very severe third degree burns. Um, there was no drugs in the house. Uh, they'd got a bad tip from a druggie that there were drugs in this house, there was nothing there. Um, they've they've they, they shot, they did another one. I read some cops in the US busted into an old woman's house in the middle of the night. She was upstairs, thought she was being burgled, Mm -hmm. pulled her gun out and, like, shot into the ceiling to scare them off so the agents killed her because she'd fired off a shot. She was like some 80-year-old woman. Again, nothing found in her house, bad bad intel. Um, And, of course, the cops always get off, you know. There's no penalties on the cops for this kind of stuff. So no-knock warrants the Nixon administration put through. Preventative detention was a good one. Um, They used this at one stage uh, in the early 70s. There was going to be a big anti-war protest. (laughs) Mayday. So so they figured out that with this new preventative detention, they could arrest all of the protesters Mm -hmm. before the protest... (laughs) Um, and they could do it on the basis that, uh, look, they, they were probably going to be using drugs. Right. Um, which meant, uh, you know, there would have been drugs on the scene and crimes committed because drugs lead to crime. <laughs> so they could arrest them first. It's like pre-crime <laughs> in the minority report. Well, yeah,
3: exactly. Yeah. I think they detained or arrested 8,000 people and kept them in a stadium. Yep. Jeez. That was the one. That's how yep. you break a Sorry. demonstration.
1: Yeah, and this is, and you know, this is America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, right? We're not talking about the Soviet Union no, sure? or Germany, yeah. East Germany. Yeah. This is this is Nixon's America. Um, so according to Nicholas Polenji, you know, Nixon had set this up so he could have his own basic private FBI yeah. that could go after his enemies, especially, as I said before, the anti-war left and the blacks mm-hmm. that um, Ehrlichman confessed to um, and just take him out of action. And he didn't have to ask other agencies to do it. It was just Nixon's agency that reported Fuck. to Nixon.
3: And, and you forgot the other, the other uh, thing that was given in, in current laws was special investigation grand juries. It had the power to question witnesses under oath, and if you resisted, they could put you in jail and keep you in jail until you agreed to answer their questions under oath. So a lot of power. For this, uh, for this special agency that reports directly to Nixon, thank God it wasn't intended to be around for years and years and years.
1: Well, it didn't have to be because it became the DEA, right. basically. <laughs> um, right. O'Daly and the uh, other agencies that have been created right. basically were merged and became the DEA.
3: Right. No, but to show how full of shit this was, it was purposefully set up to last 18 months, which would, if you happen to look at a calendar, get Nixon past the next election. I'm doing something. I want everybody to see it. It's very visible. You'll see my people out on the streets will be making reports and arrests, and you'll see tables full of drugs, and it's going to help get Nixon reelected.
1: Exactly. Uh, Just to wrap up, Turkey, remember they said we'd pay Turkey $35 million to stop producing opium? Yeah. Well, Turkey followed through on that, and they did such a good job at stopping opium that there wasn't enough opium for the U.S. to have legal opioids like morphine and coating. So the Nixon administration needed to go back to Turkey and ask them to start (laughs) growing opium again. (coughs) And, of course, Turkey's response was... Sure, if you'll pay us. Yeah. (laughs) How much are you going to pay us this time? (laughs) And then other opium-growing countries started asking for handouts as well, and they figured out America was getting blackmailed. I'm embarrassed. So they gave up on the idea of paying countries not to grow opium and fell back on just enforcement and crop eradication to stop farmers from growing their most profitable and lucrative crop.
3: And, and, of course, we don't even have to mention that none of this stuff would matter if there was no demand. But if you live in a democracy and a certain percentage of your people want drugs, they're going to find a way to get them.
1: And also that none of it mattered because all the, the Schaefer Commission said marijuana's not a problem. Heroin even isn't really a problem, um, but none of that. The actual uh, (laughs) fact-based conclusions came into this form.
3: The only good news was that cocaine at this point, as far as I can tell, was so expensive, only the elite could get their hands on it. Uh, Hopefully the prices never drop.
1: And just to wrap up, Ray, the number of Americans who died in 1971 from all legal and illegal drugs, Mm 2,313. The number of Americans who died choking on food, 2,227. So about the same. And the thing you have to understand just to go out, Ray, about Nixon was he was the son of a preacher man. Take it away Aretha.